Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 1898, at the annual meeting of the National American Women's Suffrage Association in Washington, D.C., the suffrage movement celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention. Displayed reverently on the convention stage was a small round table covered in patriotic bunting. The significance of this small table lay in the fact that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Martha C. Wright, and Mary Ann McClintock had drafted the Declaration of Sentiments based on the Declaration of Independence that gives the first real statement of women's rights in North America on that very table 50 years earlier. And you can see the table for yourself at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. However, what many modern museum goers may not know is that this very table so prominently displayed at the suffrage convention and ever since, has another history too. That table has been the means through which the spirits of the dead had communicated with the living through raps and knocks against the table and the tipping of the table from left to right, front to back. Numerous seances were conducted at that table at the McClintock's home in Waterloo, New York. Their neighbor, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, had experienced the same knockings in her own house. The sounds and movements were the communications sent through the spiritual telegraph, apparent at seances that were being conducted with increasing numbers beginning in 1848 and throughout the 19th century. The Declaration of Sentiments Table, Smithsonian Catalog Number 26160, is also a seance table, putting it squarely at the intersection between the 19th century women's rights movement and spiritualism, a religious movement that took America by storm in the 19th century. 
1848 was a momentous year. In one of those years, like, say, 1968, where major stuff is just happening all over the globe. In 1848, Frederick Douglass settled in Rochester, New York, to be near to his dear friends Isaac and Amy Post. Douglass and William C. Nell started the North Star newspaper that same year. Europe experienced a wave of revolutions throughout 1848, beginning in Sicily and spreading to France, Germany, Italy, and the Austrian Empire. That same year, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels published the Communist Manifesto, starting a worldwide phenomenon still important today. The Seneca Falls Convention, touted by many as the first women's rights convention, was held in Seneca Falls, New York, and proclaimed that the self-evident truth that, quote, all men and women are created equal, end quote. And in 1848, sisters Margaret and Kate Fox, only 15 and 11 years old respectively, began communicating with spirit in their home in Hydesville, New York. Their spirit communications went on to help launch spiritualism, which grew as a religious movement right alongside the abolition and women's rights movements that were also growing in the Rochester, New York region. One of the reasons the women's rights and spiritualism movements grew alongside one another was because of women like Amy Post. Post was at the center of developments in reform and radical religion around Rochester, New York. She was a critical figure in the growth of spiritualism because of the degree of respect that she commanded. She became a kind of mentor to this to the Fox sisters and lent the movement credibility through her support and belief in the Fox sisters' ability to talk to spirits. This is the same Amy Post who was good friends with Frederick Douglass, the same Amy Post that became friends with Harriet Jacobs and encouraged her to write her slave narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is the same Amy Post who attended the Seneca Falls Convention and who, along with two other women who eventually became spiritualists, made the unheard of recommendation that a woman should preside as president of the follow-up convention to Seneca Falls that was held later in Rochester. Spiritualism, as well as women's rights and abolition, spread through her network of radical Quakers. But why in most conversations regarding these 19th century reform movements is spiritualism left out of the history? For example, those of you who recently read the Pulitzer Prize winning doorstop of a book about Frederick Douglass written by David Blight, uh, you might flip back through it and notice that nope, spiritualism is not discussed at all. Even though Amy and Isaac Post are prominent figures in the book, and their papers are heavily relied upon in the footnotes. Now, this in no way is me harping on David Blight. David Blight is awesome. It's just to highlight really how much spiritualism is left out of the story of these 19th century reform movements time and again. When Anne Browdy published her groundbreaking book, Radical Spirits, in 1989, critics did not like that Browdy prominently linked the women's rights movement, particularly during the antebellum period, with spiritualism. And even now, 30 years on, many histories still gloss over these important connections. So today we're exploring the close association of spiritualism and the women's rights movement of the 19th century. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG.
Happy summer, listeners. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters and especially our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. Lauren, Edward, Iris, Denise, Susan, Agnes, Peggy, Colin, Maddie, Maria, Jesse, Hannah, and our newest patron, Karen. Welcome. We can't thank you all enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. As always, I've relied on the important work of historians to craft this episode, particularly the work of Anne Browdy, Trisha Franzen, and Molly McGarry. Please visit our website at digpodcast.org for citations, bibliography, and a transcript of this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1848, Margaret and Kate Fox first heard the wrappings they attributed to the spirit of a dead peddler who had been murdered and then buried inside the walls of their small cottage in Hydesville, New York. After completely freaking their mother out, who in turn brought in neighbors to witness how the wrappings were coming in answer to her daughter's questions, the sisters' spirit communication was taken seriously by adults. What started out as a confined neighborhood phenomenon quickly made its way into the public sphere and eventually formed into a new religious movement, spiritualism. The most immediate reason why news of the Fox sisters' spirit communication spread so quickly was because Isaac and Amy Post witnessed the Fox sisters' phenomenon, were convinced and brought the sisters into their home, essentially giving them credibility in the public eye. The posts were at the center of a large and active network of abolitionists, radical reformers, and radical Quakers. Word of the Fox sisters' spirit communication spread quickly through this network. Once the news of the spirit wrappings was out, and once adults who were respected and known for their religious piety had taken it seriously, many were interested in hearing spirit communication from or through sources, like teenage girls, that they had previously not considered credible. Rochester, New York was in the area known as the Burned Over District in the first half of the 19th century because the flames of religious revivals stemming from the Second Great Awakening were burning through Western and Central New York. Typically, we associate the Second Great Awakening with the 1820s through the 40s, when we see religious authority and experience sweeping the country through revivals, and we see a declining emphasis on an educated clergy, on religious hierarchies, and on religious education. What we do see is an increasing emphasis on religious experience that was accessible to any individual. The flames of revival that passed through upstate and western New York left in their wake evangelical churches and religious communities like Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventism and other new religious developments that found root and receptivity in that area. The Fox Sisters' mediumship was really one of many origins of spiritualism. 
Mesmerism and animal magnetism were already ideas floating around in science, changing the way people thought about the human mind. In 1844, Andrew Jackson Davis, a.k.a. the Poughkeepsie Seer, was developing his harmonial philosophy while channeling the spirit of Emanuel Swedenborg. Major advancements in communication technology were also changing people's understanding of communicating across great distances. It's no coincidence that central-slash-western New York and Seneca Falls in particular, which is a small village not far from Rochester, was an area that simultaneously gave birth both to spiritualism and to organized women's rights movements because there were a lot of individuals that lived in this region who were pressing radical ideas about individual agency. Central and Western New York was also a place very receptive to these types of new, even radical ideas, because it was at the heart of the technology and communication revolution going on in America during the 1830s and 40s. Transportation advancements like the Erie Canal and the railroad were literally changing the concept of time and space. Communication advancements like the telegraph and the massive spread of steam-powered printing presses spread information in hours and days, not weeks and months. So time and space were literally being rearranged during this period. And so it's not weird to think that people would believe that humans could find a conduit to speak to the spirits of the dead. All of the sudden, humans were speaking to people on the other side of the country. These technological advances were like magic for a society where they had not previously existed or were known. And things like the telegraph were really poorly understood when they were introduced, particularly before someone could witness them personally. And so it's not a crazy idea that there could be a spiritual telegraph that would connect communication through human mediums with the spirits of the dead. No crazier than there being a telegraph that would send communications across the country without anybody being able to hear or see these communications. And perhaps it's no coincidence then that the first spirit messages that were communicated were transmitted through the sounds of knocks and raps bouncing off the furniture, floors, and walls. Morse code, which is what telegraphs use, is a series of rappings and knockings. And so it's not surprising that contemporaries called the spirit communications a spiritual telegraph. The antebellum communication revolution also helped spiritualism spread through print. The spiritualist press of the 19th century was crucial to the spread of spiritualism. Now, all of these radical-minded people across the U.S. were able to subscribe to periodicals and receive them through the mail. They were able to get information about spiritualism and form connections with other spiritualists and were not bound by their geographic locations. Communities of like-minded people began to form what we would today call virtual communities, where time and space did not hinder communication. These periodicals would also print the names of other subscribers in your town or state, opening the potential to create a network in your community. The spiritualist press would also inform you when speakers might be coming to your state or city, where you could go and hear and meet other like-minded people and receive further information about the religious movement. Spiritualists were seeking proof of the immortality of the soul by communicating with the spirits of the dead usually through the intervention of a human medium who was receptive to spirit communication. And those spirits might be the spirits of deceased relatives, 
loved ones or friends who had passed to the world beyond. Or the spirit wrappings on the table might be a public figure. Spirits could also be from other cultures or civilizations long past. Usually the spirit that communicated through a human medium was understood to be the spirit of one individual. Many people held seances in their homes because they were looking for consolation. Perhaps they wanted to reunite with a loved one who had been ripped away too soon. This was a time when families were becoming more connected to younger children. Although still astoundingly high, infant mortality was on the decline throughout the 19th century, and families became more invested in their love for infants and young children. And because death was still very much within the purview of women, it was women who cared for the dying. It was women whose children died in their arms. And so many women were looking for consolation after the death of their children. Many early seances were conducted by writing the alphabet out on a piece of paper and the spirit medium would pass their hands over the alphabet until raps were heard and then stop on that letter. Essentially, they crafted a rudimentary Ouija board without the planchette. Sometimes mediums had a hard time separating these letters into words and the messages weren't always clear. But this attempt at spirit communication really replicated the types of technologies that were springing up during the period. The first seances were not party games, but real attempts to reconnect with loved ones through the scientific tools available at the time. In the summer of 1848, the Fox sisters relocated to Rochester, and it's the first time that they publicly displayed their talents in Corinthian Hall. And for context, this is the same hall, Corinthian Hall, that Frederick Douglass delivered probably his most famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? That same summer, the Seneca Falls Convention met roughly 50 miles away to work on the social, civil, and religious rights of women. When Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton put out the unprecedented call for the Seneca Falls Convention, it was to discuss their rights in the religious sphere just as much as their rights in the civic and political spheres. Women, for the most part, were denied votes in their churches, just as they were for state and national elections. Women were excluded from ordination in the churches, the same way they were excluded from elective office in civil society. And so the religious sphere was very much on these reformers' minds at the time. Reformers at the Seneca Falls Convention declared that when men usurped the rights of authority in the church by excluding women from the clergy and from religious office, they were stepping into the place of God by excluding women from religious rights. So not only was Seneca Falls the birth of the women's suffrage movement, it was also women demanding equality in the churches and the religious sphere. These women were looking to dismantle the patriarchal hierarchy in established religions. And so it's not really surprising that numerous participants of the Seneca Falls Convention eventually became spiritualists. Spiritualism and women's rights spread simultaneously through the network of Quaker abolitionists that produced the first supporters for both movements. A group of progressive friends attended the Seneca Falls Convention, three of them, Amy Post, her sister Sarah Hallowell and Sarah Fish also made the historic recommendation that the Rochester Women's Rights Convention elect a female president, something that had not been done before. 
Susan B. Anthony's writings and correspondence are full of the connections between spiritualism and the women's rights movement. One way that the women's rights movement and spiritualism grew together was through lectures by trans mediums. These were human mediums where, different from the rappings and knockings of a private seance, trance mediums gave lectures guided by a spirit who spoke through a medium in a public setting. The trance lecturers were a very important development in American history because they were the first large group of American women to mount the podium and speak in public. There had been other instances of women who had done this, most of them under some kind of spirit guidance, whether that be the Holy Spirit or spiritual inspiration connected to the Bible. For example, someone like Anne Hutchinson, a Puritan woman in New England who essentially spoke to God, did this, but of course was run out of town for it. Quakers already had a notion that the individual contains within themselves a perfect transcript of ultimate truths that each individual is a transcript of the mind of God, and we should look within ourselves to know the inner light or the mind of God. The inner light was very close to what spiritualists would do when they looked to individual mediums to hear the voices of spirits. But trance speakers who saw themselves as communicating messages from spirits were the first significant group of American women to go out on tour as public lecturers. In the first half of the 19th century, the idea of a woman appearing in public was a breach of proper decorum. Reasons proscribing against women speaking in public were many, but from a woman's perspective, she did not want to speak in public uh, in front of a promiscuous audience because she would not want to be the object of the male gaze. In a promiscuous assembly, an assembly of men and women, men could look at women freely, but women, caveat white women, were considered to be appropriate only to the private sphere. There were moral equivalencies associated with the private and the public sphere, and a woman entering the public sphere became a public woman, which was often another word for being a prostitute. Remember, the first women who spoke as abolitionists, the Grimke sisters, had rotten fruit thrown at them because of the scandal of a woman lecturing or preaching in public. It was considered to be immoral. But what was interesting is that the attributes that made one a true woman during the antebellum period also made her a superb medium. Historians refer to the cult of true womanhood as ideals, mostly unattainable for the majority of women, that conceived of women as, by nature, pure, passive, and pious, and reflected the qualities of a perfect Christian better than men did. Women were supposedly untainted by the competitive values of the marketplace and of the economic sphere, and therefore they reflected the values of the home, the domestic values of Christianity, and the home as a place of charity, of nurture, of retreat from the marketplace and politics, where men got dirty through competition. Women mediums kind of pushed this idea to the extreme. If women had these innate spiritual qualities, more so than men did, then it stood to reason that women could sense spirits more readily than men. Essentially, that women's innate purity and religiosity made them perfectly suited to be vehicles for divine knowledge. This, of course, was completely opposite of what established Christian churches recognize as spiritual guidance. Established religions recognize the authority of theological education, the authority of scripture, the authority of male priests and pastors. The idea of a spirit medium presented a very different possibility of religious authority. 
In spiritualism, the word of spirit is not coming from scripture. It's not coming from a male preacher. It's coming directly through the medium. However, women mediums walked a delicate line between maintaining their moral stature and allowing spirit to speak through them. But trans speakers had a kind of out that other women didn't have if they spoke in public, because trans speakers were not claiming to speak for themselves. They were claiming that an external intelligence was speaking through them. In this way, trans speakers were not speaking their own words. Their words came from an intelligence that they did not control. And this allowed them to forego some of the limits on women speaking in public. And so when a spirit medium spoke in public, they were essentially the intermediate space where they were not speaking for themselves. They were speaking for someone else. The ideal medium was a young girl someone who was understood as being naive, innocent, and therefore incapable of deceit. The Fox sisters fit this bill. They were young, white, and female, and therefore perceived to be innocent. Cora L. V. Scott was one of the most successful trance speakers of the 19th century and fits this description as well. After beginning her life in western New York in 1840, Cora's family relocated first to the utopian Hopedale community in Massachusetts and later to Wisconsin to found a similar utopian community. It was in Wisconsin where the 11-year-old Cora began to fall into trance and speak with the voice of spirit. In 1852, at the age of 12, she joined the spiritualist lecture circuit. Audiences adored her golden curls and angelic voice. She was written about in the newspaper and became an enormously desirable and appealing figure. When questioned whether trance mediums were indeed just vehicles that spirits used to communicate, the medium's gender, perceived innocence or piety, and age were often touted as proof that they were, in fact, channeling the voices of the dead. When spirits inspired trance lecturers, they often delivered communication on subjects that they were concerned about during their own lifetime. So, for example, Benjamin Franklin was often channeled for the communication of scientific information. And the notion that spirit mediums could communicate complex ideas was understood as evidence of spirit presence because most of the mediums were people who did not have a formal education. Cora Scott was so popular and trusted because everything rested on the quote-unquote fact that a young woman could never produce the kinds of talks and speeches that she delivered. It had to be the voice of spirit because a young girl is plainly just too dumb to come up with this kind of stuff herself. Being in trance then allowed women to say things that they could not say in the general public. Spiritualist and biographer Harrison D. Barrett wrote of Cora, quote, If you can imagine the picture, a child of 12 years of age standing before crowds of people, discoursing to them upon the most abstruse questions in ethics, philosophy, science, and theology in a scholarly, dignified manner. What did it all mean? This was the question asked by the multitudes who listened to her, and to which the more thoughtful among them could not find but one solution. It meant that the spirits of the departed had the power to return to earth, and by means of some psychic law could control the brain of a human being for the purpose of giving their testimony to prove that death was but the gateway to life immortal. End quote. 
another observer opined on the medium abilities of a woman named Emma J in 1855. And he says, quote, that a young lady not over 18 years of age should speak for an hour and a quarter in such an eloquent manner with such logical and philosophical clearness. Well, this had to prove the presence of a, quote, power not natural to the education or mentality of the speaker. Spiritualism was antithetical to institutional religion because it alleged that truth came directly to the individual without mediation by a minister. Spiritualists were pushing the idea of the autonomy of the individual, the appeal of a form of religion that could forego religious authority through mediumship. You, the individual, can find out directly the ultimate truth. They pressed the idea of the autonomy of the individual in both a spiritual and political sense. This is what we see in the radical wing of the abolition movement. People like William Lloyd Garrison, who viewed abolition as an extension of the idea that it is heretical for one individual to assert ownership over another individual because only God has the authority or the ability to hold that control. Taking this further, spiritualists argued that society imposed an immoral theology and an immoral structure of relations between human beings. And so this is why spiritualism worked hand in hand with the abolition and the women's rights movements. Spiritualists argued women needed to be freed from societal structures that limited their education, that denied them ownership of their property or their children, and from restrictions that forced them into economic dependency on men. In 1859, during a trance, medium Emma Harding proclaimed that, quote, the present marriage law is a failure. Spiritualists argued that the same state that supported slavery also made laws that conflicted with women's self-ownership. Spiritualists argued that marriage laws, quote, robbed the wife of her child, her property, her name, and of her individuality. Spiritualists also argued that marriage denied women power over their own bodies. Marriage granted a husband sexual access to their wife's body, and she had no legal right to refuse. They likened marriage to prostitution or rape. The leading spiritualist periodical, The Banner of Light, proclaimed in 1864 that, quote, rape is punished out of wedlock, but in it paid no attention to, end quote. These were very radical ideas at the time, and so People who were abolitionists and those fighting for women's rights often became spiritualists because ideas about one person's domain over another human being resonated with them. Spiritualism became the major vehicle for spreading women's rights during the antebellum period. Many of the movers and shakers of the suffrage movement were, in fact, spiritualists. Stanton and Anthony, no, although they did participate in seances. But women like Anna Blackwell, who was Lucy Stone's sister-in-law, Sarah Anthony Burtis, Susan B. Anthony's cousin, Marianne and Thomas McClintock, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's neighbors and owners of the house in which and table which upon Stanton drafted the Declaration of Sentiments, and tons of Lucretia Mott's friends were all spiritualists. Susan B. Anthony commented in her diary how, quote, spiritualism as usual was the principal topic, end quote, at a dinner party amongst a group of Quaker abolitionists in the 1850s. 
the Civil War was really a turning point in the 19th century, and we began to see changes in spiritualism and the women's rights movement after the war. During the war, most reform groups dropped everything and turned their attention to the war effort. However, spiritualists kept having conventions and meetings where not only spiritualism was discussed, but also women's rights, dress reform, animal rights, vegetarianism, free love, etc. All of the radical reform movements and radical spiritualist reformers were still advocating for women at a time where most of the nation's attention was on the war. And understandably, there was a huge amount of carnage during the Civil War, which inevitably generated a lot of interest and communication with the dead. Ideas about death and dying were changing. Drew Faust has an excellent book on Americans' changing ideas about the deceased body. And there are other movements going on as well, like the rural cemetery movement, that were changing the way people buried their dead and thought about the corpse after the soul or spirit had left it. But this also drew more people towards communicating with those spirits. And so they might go to a seance or to a spirit medium to do that. Spiritualism morphed and changed over the 19th century, as all movements do. By about the the 1870s, a schism was developing within spiritualism between trance mediums and materialization mediums. Trance mediums communicate the presence of spirits through their words and the wisdom they want to give to the the living. Materialization manifestations claim to prove spirit presence through the physical presence of the spirit in the room. Different materialization mediums demonstrated the physical presence of spirits in various ways. Some would have spirit perhaps touch a loved one's face or shoulder inside a darkened spirit closet. Others would have musical instruments in the room and they would invite the spirit to drum or blow a horn. Some materialization mediums demonstrated the physical presence of a spirit by expelling a substance from their bodies, called ectoplasm. And of course, all these attempts to demonstrate the physical presence of a spirit provided many opportunities for fraud. Serious accusations of fraud against both mediums and spiritualists who accepted both communications through materialization manifestations were bandied about during the Gilded Age. Both uh, my episode in the series and Marissa's episode touch on materialization mediumship, including some fraud examples. Because spiritualism was a religion that never had an orthodoxy or a religious hierarchy that could say who was legit and who was not, spiritualists were really free to respond to these types of accusations of fraud however they they saw fit. Certainly, these exposures created a crisis of faith for some followers. But for other people, it simply meant that while some mediums were tricksters, they would continue to search out mediums who were legitimate. It's at this time that there's a small but vocal minority of spiritualists who are pushing for a more organized religion. According to Anne Browdy, quote, in its first decade, spiritualism's insistence on individual freedom in all things prevented its adherents from establishing formal structure, organization, or leadership of any kind. Faith alone bound believers together, end quote. However, advancing a nationwide movement with no formal organization was pretty much impossible. Spiritualists couldn't do things like massively organize schools or colleges, erect monuments or buildings, or have any type of formal governing body. As we mentioned earlier, one of the foundational tenets of spiritualism was really a belief in the self and an eschewing of all structures of authority. 
Most mediums objected to organization because it threatened their role as the most valuable assets in spiritualism. And many specifically saw the attempt to organize as a masculine suppression of female leadership in the religion. Medium Lizzie Doughton said that the push for organization was, quote, man's work, the production of men's brains. I see nothing of women about this plan. However, there were enough spiritualists interested in a formal organization to create the American Association of Spiritualists in 1865. The national organization attempted to run with the election of delegates who would be sent to a national conference to lobby for their constituents. But the qualities one would look for in a delegate, well-spoken, good with money, a good organizer, a leader, these are not the same qualities that one would value in a medium. So the qualities of a spirit medium, like innocence, purity, passiveness, femaleness, were becoming less important, and the more masculine characteristics that mediums were not supposed to possess became more important. Spiritualism wasn't the only movement having an organizational crisis at this time. At the end of the Civil War, the suffrage movement divided over the 14th and 15th Amendments. The debates over these two amendments pitted votes for white women against votes for black men. The 14th Amendment proposed to only protect the voting rights of quote-unquote male inhabitants. In fact, the amendment was the first time that the word male was inserted into the Constitution. Then the 15th Amendment declared that states could not deny the right to vote based on quote race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The amendment did not mention sex, and these were deliberate omissions, and they led to fierce debates among advocates for women's suffrage of whether they should support the amendments or not. This is where Victoria Woodhull enters the scene. We've already done an entire episode on her and her wildlife, which we'll link to on the blog, so check that out for a deeper dive into Woodhull. When Victoria Woodhull traveled from New York to Washington, D.C. in 1869, she went to the Women's Rights Convention in Washington and came away frustrated with these internal divisions going on in the women's movement. Ever resourceful, Woodhull announced that she was going to run for president, which brought her the notoriety she seemed to seek out. She became fast friends with Congressman Benjamin Butler, whom she convinced to secure her the opportunity to speak before Congress about women's suffrage. This helped cement Woodhull's place in suffragist circles, although the old guard was a little unsure of what to make of her. Victoria was beautiful, had a flashy background, and helped draw attention to the movement. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were initially enamored with her. In May 1871, Victoria was the keynote speaker at the National Women's Suffrage Association's annual convention in Washington, D.C. She spoke about the need for women's rights and for suffrage, but also talked about her campaign for president, taking her previous speeches on the subject one step further. Woodhall had a loose association with spiritualism. At the age of 10, in 1848, again, here comes that year, right? Woodhall fell into a trance and healed her baby sister of pneumonia. Her father, who was kind of a shady guy, really capitalized on her healing abilities and began to shill both Woodhall and her little sister as attractions. 
Victoria and her sister later became personal clairvoyants for Cornelius Vanderbilt. Yes, we are telling you her life is bonkers, so go listen to that other episode. But uh, Woodhull was never a medium, like a spiritualist medium on the lecture circuit or anything like that. And so her association with spiritualism was tenuous at best. In 1871, Woodhull was high on her fame in the women's suffrage movement. She was invited to the first convention of the American Association of Spiritualists and was surprisingly elected president of the controversial organization. Remember, spiritualism at this time was having a lot of internal division. However, just because Woodhull was president of the organization did not really make her a leader in the religion. She was elected president in the years 1871 through 1874, winning by less and less votes each time. And we're talking about 30 to 40 votes here, not thousands. At the time that Victoria Woodhull was elected to the presidency of a national organization of spiritualists, it was really not a meaningful or representative body. By the time she stepped down from the presidency in 1874, she was through with spiritualism and the American Association of Spiritualists was defunct. It's not until later in the century that spiritualists had an organization with some real power behind it. To many, Woodhull's foray into spiritualism seemed opportunist. The same year she was elected president of the American Association of Spiritualists, suffragists Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton repudiated her for her behavior and increasingly scandal-filled life. As some of the strictures against women speakers were loosened in the late 19th century, the need for trans mediums to promote women's rights became less radical. However, spiritualism and the women's rights movement continued to have close ties well into the 20th century. Susan B. Anthony traveled to Lilydale, New York, a spiritualist community started in 1879, almost yearly, and she delivered speeches and participated in the annual Women's Day festivities in Lilydale. Anna Howard Shaw, Anthony's protege and later president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, continued the tradition, speaking and staying at Lilydale well into the 19-teens. Many of the founders and board members of Lilydale were ardent suffragists as well as spiritualists. And this is an area that I'll be diving into into our upcoming book due out next year from Cornell University Press, this, this connection between spiritualists, um, Lilydale, and the women's rights movement later in the 19th century. To this day, Lilydale is still an active spiritualist community. It hosts the headquarters of the National Spiritualist Association of Churches that was founded in 1893. And Lilydale proudly celebrates its historic support of women's rights with a yearly Women's Day celebration. In 1885, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony wrote in the History of Women's Suffrage that, quote, the only religious sect in the world, unless we accept the Quakers, that has recognized the equality of women is the spiritualists. They have always assumed that woman may be a medium of communication from heaven to earth, that the spirits of the universe may breathe through her lips messages of loving kindness and mercy to the children of earth. Yeah, so that quote really uh, encapsulates, I think, the, um, 
the, the closeness of these two organizations and how spiritualism as a religion really encapsulated what adherents of women's rights and what adherents of abolition were, were arguing at its core, right? One's autonomy over one's own human body, right? All right, listeners. Well, that's all we have for you today. I can see why it's useful for both your your book and our book and this episode. <laughs> Lots of overlap. Yeah. Which, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I've read all of these books before and I've been thinking about them, but like diving into them again, particularly I'm working on this chapter um, for my book, which is at the beginning, because I'm really trying to tie sentimentalism and political activism um, and kind of forgetting how, how sentiment, how spiritualism is sentimentalism, Mm -hmm. right? It's really this yearning to desire to, to connect with human emotions, right? Um, And, and a way to work through these human emotions that come from something so traumatic as, you know, the death of a loved one. Um, And so it was great to dive back into this and really kind of be reminded of, of those feelings, right? Right. And how, and how they, that sentimentalism really, I think, is one of the driving forces in reform movements, even into the 20th century, right? People are like, yeah, 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 it's in the 19th century. Sure, no problem. But like, I, I argue, no, this this continues on, right? Like you can see, you know, in, in poetry and things like that in the 30s even, right? Mm-hmm. Of this, this type of deep desire to tap into these emotions and um, create action from them. Mm-hmm. Right. Not just to feel them, but to create collective action. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, as you said, you've read all these things before, but I think it's it's interesting to me that now that you're reading them with the spiritualist lens in mind, it's changing your perspective a little bit. Right. Like mm-hmm. like it would have if if who was the who's the fella at the beginning who said is a great is a great historian, but he doesn't include. Oh, David Blight. David Blight. Right. Like. I wonder how different his book would have been if he had thought about spiritualism in this context and added that or, 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 or even just even just considered it in the importance in this movement. Right. So it's just it's yeah, I love the intersections. It's intersectionality yeah, at its I greatest. Agreed. Agreed. And so the, I, I mentioned her at the top. But Liz, uh, what's her name? Lisa McGarry has a great book. It's Ghosts of Futures Past, mm. which kind of revisits Browdy um, and and brings it into. She actually uses kind of a um, uh, a um, oh my god, I'm blanking. Um, queer theory mm. to kind of you know again explore these intersections really. Yeah. So way fascinating. Cool. Oh shit! All right, that's good. Well. Thank you all listeners. Make sure to visit digpodcast.org to learn more. There you'll find uh, our educator resources. You'll find bibliographies, show notes, transcripts, and links for all of our social medias. So thank you so much for listening, spending your day with us. And you know what? Those five-star reviews on your, uh, you know, podcast listener, those really help us out. So keep them coming. We love them. Yes. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, um, and Instagram at dig underscore history. Bye. Bye.
This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avery Rose. Thanks for listening. Harrison G. Barrett. Harrison D. Barrett. What? Barrett? 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 Okay. I would say Barrett. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. In 1859, during a trance, medium Emma Hardred, Hardinge, Hard, how would you say that? Hardinge? Hardinge? That's just me. Hardinge? Yeah. I'm going to go with you because usually. No, wait. What if it's not? According to Anne, what did you call her? Brody? It's Browdy, yeah. I've always said Broad, but I listened to an interview with her and they said Browdy. The most obtruse. Is that supposed to be obtruse? I, no, that's, I had to look that word up and I was like, I've never seen that word. It's ab, abstruse. It's hard to, it means hard to understand. Oh, okay. It is a word. I had, I, I checked because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, should that be obtuse? Yeah. Right. To Washington, D.C. Repudiate. Repudiate. Go. Went. Oh, God. I hate when you write in present tense. <laughs> Do you say a shoeing or a chewing? I say a shoeing. A shoeing. Shoeing? A shoeing? Yeah. Okay, so I said it yeah. correctly? Or I said it okay? You said it the way I, I say it. I might say it wrong. Who knows? And those spirits might be the spirits of deceased. Oh, my, God, my stomach just growled. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that dramatic reading, Avery. You're welcome.